morning on the West Coast and good afternoon on the East Coast. And if you're anywhere in the middle, I hope you're having a great lunch. My name is Michael McKay, and you're listening to Registry Report Radio. Today, we're going to be talking about an organization called Prostasia. And Prostasia is an organization that protects children from sexual abuse by funding scientific research on child sexual abuse, engaging diverse stakeholders, addressing human rights impact of laws pertaining to child sexual abuse, and communicating all that information to the public. Our guest today is Executive Director Jeremy Malcolm, and he's here to tell us a little bit more about his organization. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me. I've been wanting to talk to you for such a long time. I don't know if you know this, but Postasia began its advocacy around the same time that I began mine. And so I took a particular interest in how you guys were developing your base of supporters and getting your message out there. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you brought this all together a year ago? Sure. Well, it was really a group of people who were just getting increasingly frustrated with the way that our society deals with the sexual, child sexual abuse problem because we just go about it in such a wrong-headed way which just plays on stigmas and stereotypes and, and makes people feel good about you know, being harsh against offenders but it doesn't actually have the effect that we want it to have. It doesn't actually stop uh, abuse from taking place. And the impetus, if there was one defining event which, which caused Prostasia to move from just an idea into an organization, it was the law Foster, which uh, was passed. It was signed into law one week before our organization's formation. So for those who don't know about it, Foster is a law which really targets sex workers, although originally the justification given for the law was that it would stop child sex trafficking. But the way of doing that is by making internet companies responsible if there's any allegation that their services were used to facilitate trafficking. And trafficking, the definition of sex trafficking, is no longer just focused on child sex trafficking, but on trafficking in general. And the definition of trafficking is broad enough that it includes consensual sex work between adults in many cases. And so the impacts of this law have been firstly to harm a lot of sex workers in terms of their physical safety and their stability of their livelihoods. But also it has resulted in a lot of censorship online where internet companies are getting nervous about posting anything sexual for fear that they might be held responsible under this law foster. So that was the event that really brought our community together to begin with, but it's only a small part of, of what we're about. We're about proposing more effective alternatives that aren't just based on stereotypes. So the foster was based on the stereotype that child sex traffickers are, are, are the largest, you know, are, are responsible for, for most of the child sexual abuse that happens, and that's of course not true. Another stereotype which your listeners would be more familiar with is that people who are on sex offence registries are responsible for most child sexual abuse. Now both of those stereotypes, as we know, are, are not true at all, and in fact most child sexual abuse is committed within the home by people that the child knows and they may not even be known to the criminal justice system. They may not be people that uh, clinicians would define as pedophiles. So by focusing all our attention on child sex traffickers and people on the registry, we're actually overlooking the vast majority of child sexual abuse that happens and not even thinking about ways to prevent that. So that's in a nutshell 
why we came together. We, we had people who have been doing this work from a, like a medical, psychological standpoint. We've got people who come from the criminal justice system. We've got people who come from the community of sex workers because we think that if you're going to be trying to prevent children from being abused in sex work, then the best people to have on your side are the adult sex workers who they don't want to have children involved. Of course they don't. So having those sort of people who are normally stigmatised as part of the problem actually on your side as allies against abuse is something that we think is essential, but it's also very controversial. And the fact that we do engage with stigmatised groups in our effort to prevent abuse is one of the things that's most different about us compared to many other organisations. Anyway, I'm probably jumping ahead and answering something about future. You're doing great. uh, You are. You're doing great. The first time I really became aware of Prostasia is when you jumped into the child sex robot fray. Looking back, in hindsight, do you regret making that one of your first major battles after forming the organisation? Yes and no. I mean, it's def- the position that we've taken is definitely the correct one. It's just that it's a very hard sell. So for those who don't know what our position is, basically we think that the laws that are being passed around the country, when we first formed Prostasia, there was a law called the Creeper Act, which, was being, which had been passed, uh, one House of Congress, and then it was waiting for passage in the Senate. And I think eventually it didn't pass because it just, they just ran out of time. But since then... There's been three different state laws. We wanted to find out what the experts said, and the experts say that banning them may not actually save any children. In fact, it may do the opposite, because it may be that there are people who have never committed any crime and who never will commit any crime, but who use a doll or a... Well, I mean, the robots are still kind of science fiction, but the, the dolls do exist. And some people may use these dolls to relieve their sexual tension just so that they don't feel any temptation to enact this in real life. So we feel it's premature to be banning these dolls until we know. And so we're supporting research into this question. I'm actually going to be co-presenting at a workshop of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers in Atlanta in November with Dr. Craig Harper, who is one of our expert advisors. And he's doing research with owners of these sex dolls to find out, you know, what are their real motivations and how do they manage their sexuality and what role does a doll play in that. So to that extent, I don't regret taking that position because it is, it is the right position to take. Mm-hmm. These are pieces of plastic. They're not really any different to any other sex toy that people might play with, except for the fact that they just produce a instinctive you know, reaction of disgust in people who you know, have a normal sexuality. Right. But I think it's more important for us to look at are these helping or harming actual children? And if we're not willing to even ask that question, then I feel like the problem doesn't lie with the dolls. The problem maybe lies with us. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, I have, a, I have some regret that it's a difficult argument to make and that it's uh, not easy for a fledgling organisation to make it. But I'm not going to... Prostasia was formed by a group of people who were willing to stand up to this stigma. I'm very proud of our advisory council who are all very well-known and well-regarded people in their fields. And they knew coming into this that they would be the subject of innuendo and sure. and false accusations and, and things like that by, by social media users. And they're, they're willing to do that because they know that they, they've got the facts on their side 
they know that they've got nothing to hide. They know that at the end of the day, uh, this is the right approach to take. And so, so I feel it's worth it, you know, even if, sure. even if we do get slapped off, I'm happy in myself for doing what I know is right. Yeah, it's always dangerous to speak the truth. <laughs> it's never very easy. How do you respond to people who claim that your advocacy and mission is not so much about protecting children as it is about promoting sex positivity and kink culture? I mean, I know there are lots of people who will throw that out there. How do you respond to that? Well, we are actually promoting not just the protection of children, but we are also promoting sex positivity and human rights because we think that they're complementary. We think that you can't really do one without the other. If we could stop all child sexual abuse tomorrow, but it would require locking away, you know, half of the population in prison, would that be a solution to the problem? Of course it wouldn't. You can't regard massive human rights infringements as as an acceptable response to this problem, particularly if there are more effective ways of dealing with child sexual abuse that don't require you to infringe human rights. And the same with sex positivity. If you have to stereotype and stigmatize large groups of people in society who've done nothing wrong, who have never had any, never touched a child, never will, I don't think that in the long term that's not an effective way to deal with the problem. So I don't so much take it as a criticism that we're promoting sex positivity and human rights because we're not doing it instead of promoting child protection, we're doing it as a component of our promotion of child protection. So the way that I see it, it's, they're inseparable. Mm -hmm. In your literature and on your website, you mentioned your stakeholders quite often. And in my previous life, I was very involved in the fetish culture, and I'm very familiar with it. And where the public sees it as a homogenous group of people, it's really very diverse with very diverse agendas and very diverse perspectives within the culture. How do you bring all of those together to support your mission? Isn't it a little like juggling cats? Yeah, I mean, we don't try and promote one stakeholder group's perspectives above another we just try to promote understanding and mutual tolerance and so definitely there's a saying in the consensual kink community don't yuck somebody's yum basically that means it may not be your thing you may think it's gross or disgusting but as long as you want respect and tolerance your sexual interests and behaviors and as long as they're not hurting anyone else as long as it's between adults and as long as it's consensual you should extend the same courtesy to others and that applies to the other representatives in our stakeholder community such as the adult uh, content industry in other words the porn industry we do have representatives from the free speech coalition who represent that sector we're not promoting porn as, as being good or bad we're not saying that you should enjoy porn or that you should feel that it's okay as long as you accept that other people can enjoy it and other people can accept that it is okay for them. And this is not whitewashing the industry. This is not to say that there are no problems, that there's no abuse, that there's no, you know, nothing that we need to safeguard around the industry. Of course there is. But we feel that having the industry involved as a partner in that is the best way to do it. Exactly the same as I said with sex workers before. Um, we're not saying there's no problems in, in adult sex work. There definitely is also a problem of uh, trafficking and abuse in that um, in that industry. But it's better to have the industry, the, the well-meaning people of good faith from the sex work community and from the kink community on board with us as partners rather than having them as opponents. Because we're never going to be able to help overcome the problems in those industries 
if we treat them as outsiders and if we treat them as untouchable. It's really only going to be something we can address. We can only address those problems in partnership with people who are from those communities who are aligned with our mission of child protection. You often have stated that Prostasia sometimes takes different positions from existing groups in this field of advocacy on key issues. Can you give us some examples of that? Well, we've already touched on one, which is the sex dolls or robots point. The other one, which is closely associated with that, I guess, is the question of virtual child pornography. So cartoons and, and things like that, are these, should these be treated in the same way as videos and photographs of real children undergoing uh, child sexual abuse? Now, uh, to me, that's a no-brainer. Like, we cannot equate those two things. It's utterly depraved and immoral to conflate a cartoon with a, a record of actual child sexual abuse. Uh, they have to be treated separately. Even if we do want to regulate cartoons and, and writings and fiction in some way, you know, we do have ways of doing that. But, but treating them as equivalent to child pornography is deplorable, in my opinion, and unfortunately, it's a, a position that is promoted by other groups. So there was a movement at the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child earlier this year to extend the international legal definition of child pornography to include anything uh, written or visual or even ornaments that depict children sexually. Now, this would, firstly, I hardly know where to start with this, but firstly, it wouldn't protect children. There's no evidence that it would, because these are not real children being depicted. They're drawings or they're stories, and there's no evidence at all to link these to actual child sexual abuse. In fact, what evidence we do have suggests that there may be an inverse relationship. In other words, having depictions of child sexuality that are fictional or fantastic can actually divert some people from sexual offending uh, against children into these fantasy alternatives. Now, admittedly, we need to do more research about that, and we are funding, we're raising funds at the moment to do that research. I've got a, uh, a researcher who's preparing a, a detailed proposal of about 20 pages that we're going to be using to raise funds to do that research in a, in a very comprehensive way. But until we have that research, there's nothing to be gained by banning things like cartoons. And the second point is, if we do ban cartoons and books and, and all these other things, that's going to seriously impact not only the artists and the fans of that work, but in some cases it actually impacts on child sexual abuse survivors. because. One of the interesting things that I discovered, only relatively recently, is that there's a large community of child sexual abuse survivors who use fiction and art as a way of processing their trauma. And these people often receive hate and allegations that they themselves are pedophiles or child abusers because of their use of this art and fiction to, you know, to deal with their own trauma in their lives. And so. Although there's an appeal to you know, banning this stuff, you really have to look through the consequences of that and who you're going to be harming, because it's not just the people that you think. You know, you're not just going to be stopping creepy old men from masturbating over cartoons. You're actually going to be hurting real artists, real fans, and a lot of the time, women and, and child sexual abuse survivors as well. Sure. How do you know the quote-unquote real age of a cartoon character anyway? It's not like you can ask for their ID. 
Isn't this yeah. kind of a thought crime? It is. And the same problem with the sex dolls as well, because uh, what happens is, and again, this is something I've been learning about myself because I had no idea about this whole subculture, but there are people who purchase these dolls for companionship and purchase them in a small size, not because they're attracted to children, but just because smaller dolls are cheaper, they're easier to transport. They often still have large breasts, and yet uh, people are being prosecuted in countries where these dolls are illegal or in state. So in the United Kingdom, just this week I read about a case where a man was charged with an offence for purchasing a doll that had adult features. It just happened that it was shorter than an adult would be. And they had, it's kind of ridiculous, they had a paediatrician give evidence saying that he believes that this doll was the height of a child. It's a piece of plastic. Um, it, some of these dolls have elf-shaped ears. Some of them might have three breasts. You know, They're not real. It doesn't matter. Essentially what's happening is that they're trying to use this as a proxy for the direct criminalization of the sexual interest in children. In other words, they're trying to make pedophilia not the act of abuse, but pedophilia in the clinical sense, meaning a feeling of attraction to children that you may or may not ever act on. They're trying to make that directly a criminal offence, which is, as you sure. say, it's thought crime. And particularly sure. so when there's lots of reasons why people might have a cartoon or a doll that have nothing to do with a sexual interest in children. But, but you know, if there's a few innocent people who are, are prosecuted, you know, that doesn't seem to be a high priority for anyone because just of this general disgust that pervades this whole area that sort of suspends people's critical thinking powers, uh, it seems. Sure. This disgust that you just mentioned, I mean, it's obvious that child sexual abuse laws are, are driven by very strong emotions rather than any real evidence or studies that show whether they work or not. I mean, not only whether they're needed or not, but whether the solutions work or not. But aren't human beings kind of hardwired to react very emotionally to the abuse of a child? And do you think we'll ever get beyond that? Well, hopefully we won't get beyond our feelings of horror and disgust about the act of child sexual abuse. But what we may be able to do is to differentiate that from things that are not abuse. And so that is a difficult thing for people to do because you just don't want to even go down that path of thinking a lot of the times. You don't want to have to look at facts and figures when your brain is telling you, no, no, this is wrong. And I understand that it's one of the difficulties that we face. I think one of the ways of overcoming that is by humanizing people who are wrongly stigmatized. And that may include you know, just getting to know people who on a registry of sex offences or someone who has admitted to trying to overcome their feelings towards children and trying to act in a way that doesn't harm them. These are human beings. They're, they're people that once you, you get to know them as human beings, I think it can start to shift your thinking a little. It should never shift your thinking away from the utter horror of child sexual abuse. But what it can do is to help you realize that not everyone who your brain associates with child sexual abuse is actually ever going to be a child sexual abuser. Or that if someone has uh, committed abuse, that they're going to do so again. Um, our, the reason why it's important to, to overcome these prejudices and stigmas is because of uh, the idea of prevention. So we want it to be possible for someone who feels attracted to a minor to have the resources that they need to avoid abusing, to avoid giving in. 
and likewise for someone who may have offended in the past. We want them to be successful in avoiding relapsing and offending again in the future. Now, surely everyone who cares for children wants the same thing. What that does mean is you need to take a bit of effort on your part to, to overcome your stigma and your, your hatred of, of these people because that's not helping them to stay safe and legal. It's actually pushing them towards it. And time and time again, researchers have found people don't offend if they have social support structures in their life, if they have people who love and care for them, if they have jobs, if they have places to live, if they feel good about themselves, they're less likely to offend. So it's a small price to pay for us to suspend our hatred and our disgust if it will help steer these people away from offending. Sure. Does Prostasia Foundation have an official position on sexual offense registries? An official position, I guess, implies something like a, a formal document, which we don't have. But what we do have is, uh, I think, a general understanding of the limitations of these registries. And I think if we were to have a, a, an official position, it would be something like there should be registries do have a purpose, particularly when they're for access by police and, and government and then employers and so on. But general public registries don't actually serve the purpose that they're meant to serve. They just alienate and, and drive people onto the margins of society where they're more likely to offend. They're also applied very often to people who've not committed crimes that we would recognize as dangerous, as making them dangerous to children. Many of the people who find themselves on these registries were themselves children or minors at the time when they offended. So I don't think our position would be complete abolition of registries, but certainly the radical reform of registries to make them more targeted on those who actually pose a risk and not necessarily making that information available to vigilantes and so on, but making, them, making it available to those who need to act on that risk and to, to safeguard children. I think that's probably somewhere where we'd land. Sure. Has Prostasia done any collaboration with organizations like NARSOL or AXOL? And if not, are they open to the possibility in the future? Absolutely. I mean, I did write an article for NARSOL back slightly before I started Prostasia. So uh, there's been some informal collaboration there, and, and definitely we have a lot of mutual followers, and so uh, absolutely we'd be, be happy to um, collaborate some more. Okay, super. I, I was just going to add that one of Axel's uh, current campaigns um, in California is, is one that we're also supporting, which is for a law that would prevent LGBTQ people from being unfairly discriminated against in the fact that the judge doesn't have the discretion to leave them off the registry of sex offenders in California if they've engaged in types of sex with 15, 16 or 17 year olds that are more common among LGBTQ people. But there is a discretion for heterosexual, you know, penis and vagina sex to leave those people off the sex offender registry. So this law would correct that imbalance and make it equal treatment for whether it's oral, anal or vaginal sex. We think that's a, a reasonable law because it really just levels the playing field and uh, so we're supporting that. Sure. On a personal level, how do you think your previous work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation prepared you for what you're doing now? But one of the reasons why I started Prostasian, despite not really being an expert in child sexual abuse prevention, was because I felt that I was powerless at the EFF to be able to come back against people who argued 
uh, for, for laws like Foster. EFF was able to argue from the digital rights standpoint and say that Foster would reduce internet freedom, but they couldn't really, they didn't have any credibility to say, and also it wouldn't help uh, protect children from abuse. So I knew that I would need to partner with people who knew more about that than I did, and so that's why I reached out to other people who had more expertise in child sexual abuse prevention and trafficking and sex work to join me in Prostasia to address these issues. So my contribution to Prostasia is more from the digital rights and human rights standpoint because I've been battling for a very long time repressive laws that would reduce internet freedom and a lot of the times these laws are justified on the basis of child protection or terrorism or sometimes you know copyright infringement but, but most of the time the most resonant argument for lawmakers is, well, we need to protect the children. And so that's why I thought having a dedicated organization that had the expertise and the breadth of knowledge to address those policy arguments specifically would be an important addition to the field of existing organizations because there wasn't really any organization at the time that could do that. Uh, we're still pretty much the only child protection organization that is in opposition to foster where one of the signatories or one of the authors of an amicus curiae brief in the constitutional litigation to overturn Foster and most of the other child protection groups out there were explicitly in favour of this law and now I feel maybe have egg on their faces a little because the statistics have started to come in and we found that uh, Foster hasn't made a dent in child sex trafficking. In fact, what it has done is made it more difficult to enforce the laws against child sex trafficking because the investigators are having a harder time tracking it down. Sure. You guys have been doing this for a year now. What have you found to be your biggest challenges so far? Well, just about a month ago, we did have a bit of a social media storm from the conservative and feminist communities in the UK. And dealing with that is quite trying because people, you know, as with any social media storm, there's not really a lot of depth to it. There's a lot of knee-jerk reactions. Sure. And it's kind of disgusting to have to fight back against people who really aren't arguing with you in good faith anyway and won't really listen to anything you have to say, even if you are able to rebut all their points very carefully. So that's been challenging. It's been challenging for us to raise funding as well because many of the existing organizations in this space, uh, particularly the uh, charitable foundations, they have a broader agenda against sex work and against pornography that we don't have. As I said, we're agnostic about this. We're not saying that sex work and porn are good. We're just saying if they're not hurting children, it's out of scope for a child protection organization to be trying to ban them. And the research actually doesn't back up the claims that are made by some of these other organizations about the link between, say, adult pornography and, and child sexual abuse. And when you look behind the credentials of some of these organizations that are arguing about those links, you find out that they are in fact church-linked groups or, or morality-based groups such as morality and media. And uh, many of the anti-trafficking groups are also coming from a different ideological position against sex work in general. So we're kind of novel to the, the funders in this space. They're not used to dealing with a group like ours that takes the positions that we do, sex work and adult content. So that's been challenging for us. However, what we have found is that we've created our own little tribe 
and the community of supporters who are paying our bills, we still need to do more to be able to go beyond our current volunteer staffing. But after one year, I'm very happy with the progress that we've made, and we are in discussion with some funders, which I'm, I'm very hopeful about. Super. Well, I have, like I said, I have been following your organization very closely. I think you, you formed your organization about this in the same month that I started doing whatever the hell it is I'm doing right now. And consequently, I've watched your progress with great interest and, and enthusiasm. I think you're doing a great thing. Tell our listeners how they can support you if they're so inclined or at least get in touch with you. Well, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, Twitter account is Prostasia Inc., P-R-O-S-T-A-S-I-A-I-N-C. And our website is prostasia.org. And if you happen to be in the San Francisco Bay Area, you'll be able to come to our first birthday event. And this is actually the first time I'm announcing this publicly. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're the first people to know that we're going to be screening the premiere, the San Francisco Bay Area premiere of the film called Butterfly Kisses for our first anniversary. Now, Butterfly Kisses is an award-winning film. It won a Best Film Award at the 2017 Berlin Film Festival. And it's about this topic. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's an excellent film, and it's had rave reviews. So if you have nothing better to do on the 18th of August and you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, please come along and meet me personally and chat to some of our other volunteers and have a look at this wonderful film. And we'd love to meet you in person. Super. Well, our guest tonight has been, or today, I, I do this so often in the evening, I forget that people actually do stuff during the day. But our guest today has been Jeremy Malcolm, Executive Director of Prostasia Foundation. You're listening to Michael McKay on Registry Report Radio. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I hope we have you on again soon. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you. 